Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. On today's episode, I get to speak with John Wood from U.S. Wellness. U.S. Wellness is a company doing very good work that seems to play a big role in what me and my family consume nutritionally. Uh, it seems like figuring out what nutrition serves you best can be quite the roller coaster for many people. And it's filled with individuality and nuance. And I'm really grateful that there's companies that I could feel proud to support. And John definitely represents one of those companies. It was great to actually chat with him and hear how he got to uh, the things that he's into and I think he's got a lot to offer and one of the things I really enjoyed hearing more about was soil which I have recently become a little bit fascinated with when thinking about the food system as a whole and what it looks uh, down the road from a you know taking a long-term perspective and I definitely have concerns about that and curious about what the best solutions for society are not just now but for future generations and those concepts are very near and dear to my heart uh, John has been nice enough to offer a uh, code for our listeners so if you'd like to take advantage of that you could find that link in the show notes and remember trying out the companies that uh, that we are in touch with is a great way to support the podcast. So if you are enjoying these and you want to try it out, then please encourage you to try try them out. Um, thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. John Wood, thank you for joining me today on the Mindful Movement Podcast. You're the founder of US Wellness and meets and I, I really appreciate you taking the time um, and, and chatting with me today. It's an honor to be part of your program today. Yeah. 
So first, I was hoping to just share with the audience what drew me to your company and, and really what it's meant for us. Um, and it, it probably uh, started around the time I quit drinking and paying more attention to my health in general and you know, recognizing that nutrition played such a, a huge role in health outcomes. And I, th I think it started by being uh, recommended to your company by a local nutritionist that was working uh, with the gym that I work at and telling me to buy bacon from there. <laughs> and it was like, and the way I remember it, she said, this is adult bacon. Uh, so, so what you're used to growing up, you know, expect something different. And I remember like my family fell in love with it and it became like our source of bacon. And then it wasn't long before we really, uh, you know, were exposed to lots of different cuts of meat that seemed to have a really a different taste profile than what we were used to. And in time was, I was learning that the quality in which, um, the quality outcome is really the quality of the outcome with raising animals for food has a lot to do with the approach to those and to the relationship of the farmer and the animal um, and it's related in your relationship to the food system and it was really profound for us it made us uh as as consumers be able to vote with our dollars which i think is one of the the finer points of capitalism i guess and be able to like support the companies that seem to share values that we either share at the time or are inspired to cultivate those values based on the examples we see by the people like you that running organizations with, uh, with an intention that is not necessarily that common in, in that industry. So I appreciate what you've been able to provide for me and my family from a nutrition standpoint. And I've watched the the health of my kids kind of thrive on your products. So I'm really grateful. Um, I was hoping you could share a little bit about what drew you into that industry or that's that angle of the industry at least. And then um, maybe get some insight of, because I know you have probably intimate relationship with the food system, maybe get some of your insights of you know, where it's going wrong and what can we do to fix it. And I know soil plays a big role in that. And I'm kind of fascinated by the little bit of education I've gotten recently about soil. And I would love to hear your, uh, your insights around soil in general and, you know, what we should be thinking about as a society to kind of give us the best chance to thrive going forward. I know that was a lot of stuff there, but <laughs> hopefully well, you could run with it. Well, thank you for finding us and thank you for your, uh, for your um, patronage of our product. And we take a lot of pride in that product and worked hard at it for the last 22 years. But my background is somewhat interesting. I'm a fifth generation Missouri farmer. Um, my great, great grandparents, one side of the family came into this county in the, 18, the late 1820s and the other side of the family came in the 18, uh, late, late 1840s. But I was in, you know, I grew up in a, grew up on a farm, you know, we milked our own cows, had a two acre garden, produced literally all of our own food. I ate like a king till I ran off to college in 1971, but I didn't realize what was really going on until later. In 1992 or three, I was introduced to Alan Savory, who wrote a book called Holistic Resource Management, which is 
actually being taught in the Kellogg School of Business at Notre Dame. It's, um, it's, it's for any business person, agriculture or non-agriculture. And I read that thing and got intrigued with it. And he came into Missouri and gave a speech in January of 1993, I think. And I, two of us went over and saw him speak, probably the most impressive speaker I'd ever seen. And um, I was kind of mesmerized by him. And I never will forget, he's, he's in a rectangular room, probably 100 people in the room. There was a mix of university people, a mix of agency people, average farmers, Mennonites and Amish, just a complete, you know, um, salad bar of different folks. And toward the end of the presentation, he said, I want you to all stand up. Uh, that's interesting. He said, I want you to clear half of the room. And he had already calculated what the bulk density was of our body weights on that half that, you know, we were standing on. And he said, this is 75,000 pounds of bulk density or whatever the number was. Now I want you to clear three quarters of the room. We're standing almost shoulder to shoulder. And he said, now this is real animal impact here. This is about 100,000 pounds of, uh, 100,000 pounds of, um, of um, you know, a bulk density. He was trying to get to the concept of grazing herds. If you go back into, into Africa before man became involved, you had, you had the lions and the tigers and the leopards, the predators, and then you had the, the zebras and the gazelles and the giraffes and all these herbivores you think of in African safaris. And they were forced to actually stay in a large group for their own safety and protection. And they would go to an area, they would spend a day, they would graze, they would dung and urinate, and they would move on. And the predators only pick off the cripples, the old, the weak, or whatever. And so this is how the African continent was managed. This is how North America was managed. And this was a great system. And if you go back in time far enough, Iraq gets about 50 inches of rainfall a year. It all falls in three months or four months. And then they have like a nine or eight months dry period. And so the the animals in this grazing technique they they uniformly mowed the forage off uniformly put carbon back on the soil and uh it worked really really neat and man came along he said i'm getting tired of being chased by these lions tigers and, and cheetahs and so they started to dispatch of the predators and when they dispatched enough of the predators and these animals lost their fear they were free to like go into the smorgasbord you go to your favorite smorgasbord you eat your favorite foods and you, you come back the next day and the owner replaces what you took out the day before well after about 10 days you've got some pretty sour stuff in the in the smorgasbord well this is what's happened with the land and and I, i'd noticed some things in my lifetime and i never did quite make sense out of it i noticed in the pasture where cattle were exposed to the entire pasture for a summer they would eat certain areas like your desk up in certain areas they wouldn't eat i kind of thought that's strange why would they eat here and not eat there and um but that's what actually happened. That's why you had the deserts in, uh, in uh, Australia, the deserts um, in, in, in Africa. In fact, one of the most rapidly expanding deserts, according to Savory in 1993, when I speak, was the state of New Mexico. The state of New Mexico and Somalia have almost exact same rainfall patterns. And of course, Somalia is a very corrupt, dangerous place. New Mexico is a you know, beautiful place and people aren't killing each other and you know they're basically they get along because we have a food transportation system everyone's got plenty to eat they have plenty of water plenty of shelter and, and we get along well i was a boy scout back in the 1960s and i remember going to philmont scout ranch and i was up on top of the mountain there and you look out across the new mexico prairie and it was green it was you know it was green 
and I flew over that same area going to a meeting in an airplane and you know, 25 years later, and it was brown. I mean, that's how rapidly the Mexico was changing it. And, um, and it, it gets back to this principle. Well, anyway, Savory, um, long story short on him, he, he left Africa kind of in a hurry one night because the British were not happy with him. He had actually figured out in Rhodesia, he, they'd given him 20,000 hectares and that over the span of about three or four years he figured out how to actually rejuvenate desert back into live grass and, and put it back into the cadence it was in you know a million years ago but he got kind of crossways with the British when the Afrikaners were trying to throw the um, the British out of Rhodesia and form Zimbabwe and he had to leave at three in the morning one night or else he was going to be executed the following day at sunrise. He jumped into a fighter jet flew out of the country. This is quite a story. But he ended up in the United States, uh, took asylum over here and ended up in the state of New Mexico. And one of the first farms that he worked on was in northeastern New Mexico and it's an oasis today. It's completely lush green. And the neighbors on all four sides probably still laughing at him and their ranches are brown and dry and he actually had a large enough land mass he changed the you know change the soil profile and now we're going to talk about soil that's the essence of life and there's lots of civilizations that didn't do a very good job of taking care of soil they're no longer here you can see them in, in latin america you see them in mexico uh, and of course obviously northern africa is a prime example uh, lots of things are covered up in the sand but we have about a hundred years supply of topsoil left in the world today as we know it and unfortunately monoculture agriculture is in most cases is actually burning topsoil uh, to produce our corn and soybean crops a few farmers are beginning to figure out cover crops are starting to put green living matter back in those fields in the fall of the year and actually trying to regenerate soil the farm that i have been in my family for years and uh, you know well over 100 years and i first got involved in it in the 1980s um, the the organic matter was 1.5 percent which is very very low uh, outstanding organic matter is you can get it up over 10 you're just you know, that's just a home run pitch but you know i've got the thing back up now to five or six in areas in the farm i managed grazing for the last 20 some odd years 25 years so you know i've seen in my own eyes and once you start to improve the quality of the soil and the soil biology below your feet there's Technically, you take a you take a tablespoon of soil. There's a billion microorganisms. You talk to a really good soil scientist. There's just tons of stuff going on below your surface. People don't give it credit. And when it has green living plants above it, you know year round, even in the wintertime, there's actually active plant root going on deep in the soil. So um, the typical monoculture, you know, you have a growing crop out there from April 15th to October 15th, and then it's dormant for the rest of the season. And that's where part of the problem is. But uh, healthy soil equals healthy food and, and uh, your animals eat uh, so you can too. And, and we've always stated that know your food, know your farmer. And and uh, it's just critical to get that connection going. So we've worked hard at that. Uh, there's a network called the Grassfed Exchange. I was, wasn't a founder of it, but I guess I was on the founding committee and that's been around 12 or 15 years, which is a network of grass-fed beef producers around the United States, actually, including Canada and, and, uh, and old Mexico. We've seen people there from around the world and this is a really strong, healthy group of folks. Grassfedexchange.com is a website, but it's we hold an annual meeting once a year. 
And there's a lot of enthusiasm, especially in younger people. Um, I've always been intrigued. We actually raised some grant money to bring in high school and college students. And it's in the last, I think Food Inc. was a movie that came out about 2006. That was the movie that went viral um, and caused people to, that's where I really think the change of attitudes occurred. Uh, we could see changes in our phone calls, who was calling, what they were asking. That was kind of the paradigm shift, I think, when that came out. That's extremely, and I do several people involved in that. So it was kind of, you know, I, I mean, I trusted what they had to say. But the consumer has become far more educated in the last, especially the last 10 years. They're far more savvy like yourself. You know, they realize there's changes um, that can be made just by eating correctly and, and uh, trying to get sugar out of the diet and and, you know, the, the, the major national food corporations are real clever folks, you know, in the early 1970s, they turned the food pyramid upside down. We had a pretty good thing going through the 1940s and 50s. And, and then we decided we can increase carbohydrates and increase, you know, sugar and make it food addictive. And, and all of a sudden we had an epidemic and we took the fat out of the diet. You know, if you look at the sign curve as the fat intake went down, the Alzheimer's and the middle, you know, middle dimensions went up and, and the weight and the obesity in this country has just turned dramatic. And um, it's just tragic what's going on. I, I tell young people today, you'll probably be the first generation will not outlive your parents because you've eaten so poorly. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, their parents didn't know any better. And, and tragically, that's a, been a real sad deal. But and if, if you look at Argentina, um, up to about 2000, almost all the meat they consume is grass fed. Now they've got a green fed industry in Argentina now, but they were the highest consumers of red meat in the world. And they had less cancer, less heart disease, less diabetes than we did in the United States. And we had the premier healthcare system in the world. And, and um, so, you know, you look back at our ancestors and what they ate. It's pretty interesting, you know, they ate lots of fat. Uh, my grandfather kept a diary, he was a minister. And you can quote the Gettysburg Address any day of the week, he was a really smart guy. But I read some of those diaries and it's fascinating. The one common denominator on the table at every meal, he had nine, had eight brothers and a sister, grew up very, very poor in rural Missouri. But the one common food on the table year round was, was pork lard. And they would, they would, uh, they always had lard, they always had fat. And then during the course of the year, as, as the seasons changed, their diet changed. And he's written about what they ate in the winter, in the spring, in the summer, in the fall. And they all shared their shared their food wealth amongst the neighbors, got plenty of exercise, um, uh, pretty hard scrabble life. But it's you look back at what they did and what they ate, and they were all lean and lit. Nobody was overweight. I mean, they obviously worked hard in that in that environment. But the speaking, speaking of which, on you, you appear uh, visually fairly lean and healthy. Can I ask how old you are? I'm 69, believe it or not. Okay, nice. But I, I work about 100 hours a week, and I'm not normal. <laughs> My son says, "Dad, you're not normal." But but I'm like you. You know, I was I got involved in this thing and. I guess when I was uh, 40, 44, 43, 45, and I feel like I'm in better health, better immune system, um, you know, I haven't really been sick for a long time and uh, non-vaccinated, uh, you know, I, I just kind of laughed at the COVID problem because I think my immune system is so battle hardened and my employees here at US Wellness Meat, we made a decision in March of 2020, we bought 
really good supplement program paid for it paid for it. the company paid for it encouraged the you know the workforce to use it and we had very very few issues i think there's only two people have been vaccinated out of the company and we we've maintained a really good healthy profile and, and i had several people come up and tell me after we started they said i feel a lot better i said well i imagine you were missing a few things out of your out of your diet and and uh, but we've tried to encourage you know better eating habits and better health habits have been kind of fun to see some people change change their lifestyle and, and, and make changes for the better. We just uh, have a lot to do and you don't have time to be sick. And insurance guy came in here a couple of weeks ago and I said, well, we should have pretty good ears. And yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna get a check back. I mean, we've, we've overpaid because we had very, very few claims in, the, in this workforce knock on oh, wow. last year. So that's interesting. Yeah, so trying you, to, you mentioned like you might've been missing a few things and they're surprised they feel better. I mean, I guess that ties into what we're what you were just alluding to about like the soil. Just to get a little 101 here, the idea is that the reason that um, the land is be becoming like depleted and going from grasslands to like dry, brown, desert, sand, whatever, is because the animals aren't allowed to live on that land in a more natural way, which should in theory keep that land fertile, keep the soil like uh, growing, keep it alive, keeping holding water, retaining water better. And in doing so, they get the micronutrients from that soil. And then as we eat those animals, their animal is itself is more densely, you know, populated with the nutrition that we require. So it's this like cycle of health, not just the like the land, the soil, the animals, and and us. Yeah, there's a little bit of a backstory here. If you go back to the 1800s when they put the first railroad across the United States, you ask yourself, Las Las Vegas was a key stopping point on that on that on that rail network. I assume from Chicago to Los Angeles or wherever the train was going in that era. But Los Angeles, I mean, or Las Vegas. Um, was a unique piece of property. It rained four inches a year in that part of the, of the country. It was green and lush. Uh, my, my grandfather, you could quote the Gettysburg Address any time of the week, had an aunt that homesteaded in Las Vegas. And she had a free flowing artesian well on that property, which is now downtown Las Vegas. She sold the property and you know, died in the 1930s or 40s, somewhere back in there. But anyway, there was actually an aquifer underneath Las Vegas with free-flowing artesian wells. That's why they trained for steam engines back in that era. But what happened was the ranchers in Texas were being besieged by a disease called black leg. It's now controlled by a vaccine, but they were fleeing Texas. They went up into New Mexico and Arizona and turned and went up went up the went up the Great Plains. That was the Lonesome Dove cattle drive story. A movie was made of that. And they ran through that area, you know, of Las Vegas and Utah, and they overgrazed these plants. Uh, the native prairie plants that were popular, that populated this area, that was all native prairie grasses. And of course, the buffalo would come through, spend a day or two in an area and move on, and they might not come back for another year or two. They had long, huge grazing patterns. And so that's why the Great Plains sucked up all the carbon because plants bring carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil. Carbon is the glue that holds all this thing together. Um, and, you know, 
basically, if you brought the, if you watch Alan Savory's TED talk, you know, he talked about bringing, you know, the the grasslands back in Northern Africa, back in, in Australia, our Great Plains, and that's one of the greatest carbon sinks in the world is grassland, and that's what we've been able to do. But anyway, these cattle went through to Montana, and then most of them stayed up there. That's how they populated the West. But then the sheep came along after the cattle, and the sheep have much tougher grazing habits. They'll eat things right into the ground. And so what happened, if it rains an inch in Las Vegas in 1700, you know, 90% of that water would soak in into the aquifer, and 10% would evaporate off. After the cattle went through and the sheep went through, you just, you just graze everything off too tightly. And then they turn it into a hard pack, which is, a, which is a soil term. And so when it rains, it rains an inch and 90% of it runs off and 10% goes in the soil. So that's, what, that's where you really mess the land up. And so you can reverse that, but it takes really high stock density, um, 100,000 pounds an acre moving animals a couple of times a day. And you're trying to use their dung and urine to actually start the carbon process. There's a lot of old soil uh, rootstock and seed banks in the soil, it'll come back, but it just takes time and management. And there are several areas in the United States where this has been done. I've got two or three friends who know how to do this very, very well. Uh, Alan Savory's got a son and Abe Collins and Gabe Brown are several people in the, in the Midwest that have figured out how to do this. But- um, And do you think that's like scalable? Is this like, can this really be something that solves a, a giant puzzle essentially of of civilization where humans seem to be less and less connected with the environment and in doing so uh, kind of being screwed over by it in a way because of like the problems we're creating. Like, is this, can you, we reverse all that and, and move to a place where, um, you know, everybody where like 8 billion people could really be, uh, you know, fed from these, like more natural by like tap harmonizing with like mother earth instead of like trying to control it and fight and fight the natural sequences. Yes, you can. And, and Australia is interesting because in Australia, basically the topsoil is still there. I mean, you just, you can change those weather patterns by putting carbon into the soil. So that's, you know, Northern Africa is a little different and places like the UAE, uh, two of my friends went over there 10 years ago and drove around a Land Rover for, Three days, and they were trying to convince the UAE that they wanted to. They wanted. They were going to use fifty thousand animals, and they were going to bring hay in from Africa. And they had a military type strategy to, to put this soil back into the uh, back into uh, its old condition. But they found several native plants, and they drove around for three days. But it's um, the, the challenge in parts of the world is you have so much sand, you've got to, but you can turn that. There's a, there's a bacteria called mycorrhiza fungi, which is critical. And you can, you can bring that into a soil environment and it'll actually start turning sand in the topsoil. There's been examples of that done. So, um, believe so you mean all, like bacteria will just eat, eat the sand and? Well, what, what, what you're trying to do, you have to have green plants, you have to have something growing, and then you, you know, what you're doing is you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere into, into that soil profile. There's some areas in South Florida where they've got really high sand soil, which used to be an ocean beach years ago, and, and some of this has been done there. You can actually turn this around. Um, it's, it's pretty neat stuff, but you know, it takes time and money to do that, and, and unfortunately right now, I don't think the world is is quite aware of the danger we're facing. Um, but 
we talk about EMP strikes and that's pretty dramatic if that ever happens and I worry about that one somewhat too. And, but the topsoil thing, there's, um, I think there's a younger generation that actually in agriculture that's starting to understand this and there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it. And it's just, you know, you got to plant a seed at a time to make a change. And I think a handful of us that are trying to do this right now are part of the change. And I go out in the pasture a couple of days a week and I'll create a little 60 second clip that we post on the website. And, and it's just kind of, you know, I'm trying to tell the story in, in real time and showing what we're trying to do. But it's, gotcha. uh, and it's is the, uh, is the idea with like us wellness, your company, um, for I mean, you guys don't raise all the animals that you're selling through that site. Is the idea that all the farms that you have relationships with, they all have this like style uh, or th this concept that they're trying to um, practice with with their animals? Uh, yes, sir. I mean, we've we're really picky with who we work with, and uh, it's been kind of fun to work with like-minded people. And and there's people like myself in about every state, and we're just trying to connect some of those dots. But uh, we've got a couple of farms down on the Gulf Coast that we work with now for ten or twelve years, and we produce meat out there in the winter months, and it's right, literally within four miles of Mobile Bay and. 15 miles of the Gulf of Mexico, South Alabama, just a unique climate. But, uh, but we've, you know, it's been fun to work with those with those families down there because we've been trying to practice what we preach in that part of the world, and, nice. and uh, it's 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 interesting. And and you know, there's a network of people. My son's obviously grown up in this environment; he understands, and so he's one of the persons I've sent out now to kind of recruit new people and so gotcha. we've got growers in North Dakota and, and Montana and several states around the country that are doing the same thing and it's nice. it's uh, you know it's the, the problem in commercial agriculture right now the, the commercial model it takes millions and millions of dollars to play the game young people can get involved in the grass-fed beef industry with you know ambition uh, work ethic and um, somebody else can provide the cattle you know they, they can they can learn to walk in this thing without taking a huge taking a huge capital risk that's one of the neat things about that's this, nice uh, yeah that's yeah. that's an interesting thing to hear you know um it's amazing like the the what i've gotten out of using your site there's there's been interesting benefits you know one of them i think is the more obvious one that i alluded to that you just feel like you're eating higher quality food and, you know, I, I don't think it's placebo that it makes me like feel better in general. And I, you know, I see my family thriving on it. Um, one, I think, surprise benefit is prior to being able to explore like the, the user interface of your website. And I was relying on local grocery stores to get uh, my meat. I would not take many risks like I would you know you know I only bought the same couple things that I like knew how to cook or at least thought I knew at the time and I wouldn't really branch out very much and seeing essentially what's available because it seems like you guys don't waste like it's not just the popular cuts it's like every part of an animal like there's it's a very like nose to tail approach that I really appreciate and I feel like that's the greatest way to really honor an animal is to not waste and it allows you to explore things you wouldn't otherwise try um, and it's been eye-opening so now like my confidence in being able to prepare just a wide variety of different items for my family 
has has grown immensely. Now, every, you know, everybody has their favorites. So like, yeah, we're always going to buy our favorites, but we've been able to like branch out and discover things. And it's, it's comforting feeling like that you're contributing to the honoring of the animal by not wasting. And also you, you unlock a lot of things that you really like or make you, you know, feel good physically that you would have never really seen because, um, you know, it's just not presented. And this is a way like, you know, you could click on something that you've never heard of and get a little bit of a summary of, of what it is. And then, you know, if you want, you can go on YouTube or even on your site, I think there's recipes linked to. Um, the, the other thing too, is the, the organ uh, entry because I've worked with a ton of nutritionists and some of them been on this podcast. And one thing that seems to be real common with people that, you know, as a nutritionist, I feel like they're the most well-versed in the relationship of nutrition and physiology. And they all share the same thing of the value of organ meat when comprising a, a diet profile, because the micronutrients are so densely packed in them, it almost takes the burden off the rest of your diet. Like if you eat liver, a couple, you know, once a week, it's like, it knocks out so many of the essential vitamins and minerals that it, it takes the burden off like hitting daily numbers with other food that's less densely packed with them. But I didn't know about, you know, the, what's really out there with organs and granted there's a learning curve of trying to find a way to make some of those palatable, but you also have some products that make it um, very easy for people to introduce these into their diet without such a hurdle uh, in regards to the palate, like um, some like liverwurst and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Brauschwager, where there's some kind of like mix, where there's like a blend, where there's a little bit of organ and a little bit of not organ, and it makes it a lot more easy to, you know, I could get down anything, but like when I'm looking, my, my family's sitting there, like it has to be you know, they're not going to just suffer on their taste buds right. for nutrition like I'm willing to, to put myself through. So it's nice to be able to introduce organ meat to the family in a, like a more accessible, really a no pun intended, but digestible way. Um, and, you know, it also kind of contributes to like not letting go anything go to waste. And I know I've learned that in the natural world out in the wild, those have historically been prized essentially, like if you watch a big cat um, make a kill, it's likely that the organs are being prioritized very early when they're deciding, you know, what to eat. No, it's amazing. The organ sales that we have, we've developed a huge following with, and that, interestingly enough, the liverwurst, which is a mix of heart, liver, kidney, and beef, that recipe was written on a three by four card back in the 1800s, late 1800s. A meat guy I ran into 2006 and his grandfather wrote that. And he did one for the Braunschweiger. Braunschweiger just liver and beef. So if you're really after liver, I'd say buy the Braunschweiger. It's a little milder tasting. Um, but our employees here, usually their babies start to eat solid food. One of the first things they introduce them to is Braunschweiger, which oh, is unfair. That's, that's, an, that's an unfair yeah. advantage from the <laughs> brain development. But but anyway, it's uh, 
And then it's just stunning how much you know, heart and liver we sell just in one pound packages. But I had an old country doctor tell me from Arkansas, this is early 2000s. He said, the most important uh, thing that you sell is beef liver. He said, there's 25 essential you know, vitamins and minerals and amino acids in, 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 in beef liver. He says, you know, if you go back to the old times, you know, they viewed liver as a, as a medicinal food. And, and I ran across a a good friend who's in Anishinaabe, India, Northern Upper Peninsula, uh, Native American. He's a quarter now, but he's a medical doctor. But he said, as a child, we'd go out and hunt deer, and the first thing, you know, the hunting party leader would would get the would get the liver, and they would just they take the liver out, of the, and they would eat it raw. They eat the liver, the spleen, the heart. That was all. That's you know, the Native Americans knew that that was critical to their own survival. So, it's um, and then, of course, you get back to. Uh, Weston Price, who who traveled the world in the 1940s and looked at people's teeth, and he made the he made the comparison on quality of food and, and and dental care. But he said the best teeth in the world were the Aborigines in Australia. They had the highest consumption of organ meats of anybody on the planet. They ate more liver, heart, spleen, kidneys than anybody else, and they had I think just a half a percent ever had a cavity. And the second most honored group of people from a diet was in the upper reaches of Switzerland when they were drinking a lot of glacial water, you know, coming off the glaciers, the water was really rich in old minerals. And uh, they were like maybe 2% of the people would have a cavity. And then once he went into the cities and ate normal food and drank normal water, that's when things kind of fell apart. So, but it, you are what you eat. There is no doubt about it. But do uh, you, do you personally have like a favorite go-to recipe for liver or? Well, I mean, I mean, I like I like liverwurst, and it's so simple. It's fully cooked. You just slice it off, and you know we do a lot of trade show stuff and sit there and munch on liver liverwurst and brown sugar all day long. It's right out in front of you, but it's uh, uh, you know I, I I find that good. And then the other thing we've been doing lately is we've been selling a a, a raw grind of ground beef and hard liver and kidney, and that's become extremely popular. You can make anything with that. I mean, make uh, chili, make you know anything you make out of ground beef you can make with that plus your the, the kidney is the one that i feel like i have the most trouble with like i just mm -hmm. i just have yet to taste that and be able to enjoy it well when you when you do the blend you really don't know that you would never know the kidney was even in there now if you okay. compare liverwurst and brown schwager uh the liverwurst is a sharper flavor and i think that's kind of part of the kidney in there but but if you have French, German, or Russian heritage, I mean, you're 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 just wired up to love. And we actually sell more liverwurst than anything else. That's the number one seller. Uh, I say, if you're French, German, or Russian uh, heritage, I mean, that's just kind of part of your DNA. I think is liverwurst. But uh, but it's um, uh, but if you don't know what's there, I mean, if you know, like I get a kick out of kids at trade shows. You know, the mama come by, oh, liver, you know, liverwurst, and the little child will reach up there and grab a toothpick, and oh, that's really good, mom. You know, it has no idea mentally what what they're consuming and that's that's it's just like fatty foods you know we've been so ingrained for years not to eat the fat and and that's why kids will like pemmican is something we sell it's also a native american recipe a pemmican is 55 percent uh, jerky and 45 percent fat and it's kind of the recipe we settled on but you know, I eat three or four pemmican bars daily. I'm probably the highest oh, wow. consumer of pemmican in North America because <laughs> it's easy food, and I, I like the stuff. But, but, um, but anyway, it's uh, um, that's you know. good, like fuel for the go. Like it's a packs a lot of calories, and you could uh, you could travel with a little bit of it. And um, 
like if I was ever going to do a, you know, multi-day hike backpacking or something, I feel like that would be a go-to to fuel yourself. It's an interesting it texture. It's an interesting food product. And then of course we, we just touched on, on athletes and I got exposed to some strongmen back in 2003 and, uh, um, John Anderson, Jesse Morundi were some of the strongest guys in the world. We did the, we did the, uh, uh, did an expo out in Pasadena, the Ironman Expo. John Bailey, who owns Ironman Magazine, encouraged me to come out for that. That's the first time we ever did anything like that. We were just completely green scores. It was a three-day event, and about the third day, these great big, huge guys came walking over to our table, and they were competitors. And I tried to kind of talked to one or two of them and it, you know, I couldn't get past where to go. And they mm -hmm. came over and they were dead serious. I said, you know, we're, we're going to, let's just say a popular grocery store chain. We're buying their cheap ground beef and we can't eat it. We just can't eat more than a pound and a half a day or we get constipated. So we'd like to eat three to four pounds of ground beef a day. And granted, these guys are about 270 and, you know, just Large super people. strong. And anyway, they, I made them a deal. I, we, we, we gave them an incredible discount and they immediately went up to three to four pounds of ground beef a day and gone through them just like salmon. They were happy campers. Hmm. And a year later, it, both of them actually put about 25 or 27 pounds of lean muscle on. Um, Jesse Marunde went on the next year to be the second strongest man in the world. Um, but, um, they were ecstatic about how much they better. And the first thing after three or four weeks, it wasn't how much stronger they were. Their comments were, my elbows are better, my hips are better. Well, the, <clears throat> you know, grass-fed animal fats full of omega-3s, which is anti-inflammatory. And, the, you know, the typical grain-fed product, which I did for 25 years before I got into this thing from 1975 up to 2000, I was involved in a large family commercial farm and started playing with this in their mid-90s. But, um, you know, the, the, the grain-fed product is about 20 parts omega-6, one part omega-3. Sufficient, you know, chicken is like three to one ratio. And of course, salmon just sky high on omega-3s and no omega-6s. So I say people should have salmon once a week. But, but um, so these guys, you know, started eating large quantities, three to four pounds a day is a lot of meat. That is. And they, and then the first thing they noticed is after a couple of weeks, my hips feel better, my elbows. And I've saw, I've seen John Anderson do a set of 10, 900 pound squats, for God's sake. You talk about Jeez. load. That's insanity. And, um, that is insanity, but they train hard. And so his wife would make him a four pound meatloaf every morning early and slice it up in eight different sections. And he would eat so much over so many hours. That was his daily, that was his travel plan for training. And that's uh, crazy. And we fed the, we fed the New York Jets until the chef changed here in the COVID thing for 10 or 12 years. And one of the comments there from the trainer was, you know, fewer injuries, quicker recoveries. So, you know, they were trying to catalog this. and. That guy went on to UCLA, and we've actually dabbled in some of their meals, and and we've been feeding a, one of the major league baseball teams for the last three or four years now, and, and they won the World Series here a couple of years ago. And uh, the first year we had, we were full on. But interesting story was that seventh, eighth, and ninth innings, they had the fewest errors, the best batting average, and the general manager came up to the chef trainer the guy in kind of charge of food and you know i think you're part of the reason we we, we, we won this thing because the, the statistics were really interesting uh mental focus and they were they were eating fat they he had a little treats you know that were high fat things and, uh, and he came out of the out of the ufc world as far as a trainer and so that's pretty serious training as well but anyway it's that's interesting the, you say that i i definitely noticed that w when i eat 
higher amounts of fat, there is some kind of cognitive benefit. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. The brain, I think, is mostly fat. And we probably need to eat a certain amount of certain types for it to operate optimally. And I've, I think I've definitely experienced that in general. Like the more an, animal product I eat, the gen, the better I feel physically. I feel like I do put in the... It's like the more I exercise, the better my body feels, but the more I exercise, the more of that meat I need to take advantage of the exercise to get the most out of it. Like, you know, giving my body that substrate that aligns with whatever that external stimulus, that mechanical stress is on the body. Um, whatever signal is telling your body to like, you know, get strong over here, grow over here, repair this cartilage, whatever that signal is like you, you need a a sense of abundance of nutrition, um, I think, for the body to to like reach out into those metabolically expensive activities, like that are growth related, like growing muscle or growing new tissue, replacing old tissue. And um, I think it's probably overlooked in general. Like one thing I've really noticed over the years working with clients at the gym, especially when you get someone that's middle age, which is like the majority of the clients that I've worked with is just most people are really under protein um, and they have no idea. And I think back to like, or I don't think back, like I remember, but when I think of times, you know, our ancestors were dealing with so much of their life was probably just surrounding, like was based on acquiring protein and fat and, and basic nutrition and enough energy. And, um, because of cultural norms now and the way society's gone, people are very disconnected to those processes and really unaware of how much you actually need. Like when you read the charts, it, and like, uh, like I would always ask my client, I would go through like a typical day's food and then jot down their macros form, at least in the protein category. Cause I always just feel like focus on that first. It's the most satiating um, macronutrient. And I feel like that's the real nutrition protein. And then like the carbs and the fats are more like energy sources. And when you tally their protein and then you tell them how much, you know, the doctors recommend it's, they're always amazed. Like nobody ever answers those questions. And it's like, oh, it looks like you're having enough every time, hundred percent of the time that I go through this process with someone, they're significantly under protein. I don't know how we got there. I'm sure there were like, um, you know, financial interests involved with that and corporate interests, but it's kind of, a, it's kind of alarming. But at the same time, it's like such an opportunity because it's like, oh, what a low hanging fruit to address here. Because most people enjoy the foods that they need more of. Like when mm -hmm. you say, what do you like for protein? And they list them and you say, well, how do, what do you think about eating more of that? They're all like, yeah, I could do that. Like that's, there's something innate in us that feels good about that decision like we know at some level like you said the kid grabs the liver at the trade show doesn't know what it is there's something innate that tells us like this is good for me i, I want to do this we're just really we're, we're disconnected and we no longer like harmonize with with mother nature and really engage with like what makes our physiology perform at its best and i'm sure you could get by with like less protein um, I, I think RDAs in generally are, are kind of based on the average amount it takes to not die of something. But, you know, we would never ask, like, how much water do you want to drink? Do you want to drink 
the least amount you need to not die of thirst today? Or do you want to drink the optimal amount for to get you to thrive? And they're very different frameworks and they produce very different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's going on with, with protein. Um, uh, I wanted to, uh, before we're out of time, I wanted to kind of go off on a tangent a little bit. Um, uh, and this is something that I've struggled with, with the food industry in general, and really for that matter, like lots of industries, but always trying to be mindful of, um, you know, how we could make progress as a species. Uh, And I feel like plastic, though it can be super useful. Like I think in the medical field, it could really be useful. Um, There's a lot of fields that plastic is very useful. And at the same time, I think everybody is aware that we're just using it too much and we got nowhere to put it. And, you know, now it's like, in all of our, it's in our food supply, literally it's in our water supply, it's in our air and our soil. And how do we make steps going forward? One thing that I noticed when you buy, uh, especially animal products, it's hard to avoid the plastic. And the convenience factor is obviously a, a big driver. And I'm, I'm wondering, like I've brainstormed personally of like, how can this be done in a way that's more sustainable with at least significantly less plastic. Have you ever, as far as like the packaging, the, sh- the shipping and um, have you ever like spent time trying to figure out or work with people that are working on like solving that problem? Well, first of all, you know, the, the BPA plastics, which are really bad, that was really popular in the late 90s, in the 90s and the 80s. And that's pretty much completely out of the, food supply chain now, it's just, you know, if you have that, you're just completely pretty much out of luck. Dr. Mercola helped me, this was years and years ago, uh, the packaging issue, you know, it's always been an issue. And we are using film now that, you know, is food grade, um, doesn't have the, you know, the BPAs are the really bad one. There's a couple other ones in there that are also not good. And so the industry has tried to kind of work with, you know, with the paradigm shift that's going on there. So. When you're create when you're putting meat into a vacuum package, you know you've got to have. I don't know if anybody vacuum sealing uh, food, you know, that's not in some kind of a plastic. It's really difficult to do. You've got. We use barrier film, which is means that nothing comes in or nothing goes out. If you go to the grocery store and buy a chilled package of meat, odds are it's called a modified film. It's got micro pores that oxygen can come through and make the meat stay red. But it's small enough particle size that a you know bad bacteria can't enter that same package. So there's that's one of the things you buy in chilled meat. You're, you know, that's why we've elected to use barrier film. You put it in your freezer and it can sit there for three or four years and be just as good as the day it went in there. Uh, eliminates that risk. But so there's been quite a bit of science involved in trying to make plastic much healthier for people. Uh, now I grew up in an era where my dad had the local sear process, and he and the butcher wrapped it up in white butcher paper and and put it in a you know piece of scotch tape on it, and that's it threw in the freezer, and you had to eat that within six months or else freezer burn, which is another fancy word for dehydration. You're going to change the flavor and make it not taste as good, not going to hurt you any, but if that's all. But the vacuum packaging, you know, eliminated freezer burn. And that's uh, a pretty neat tool. The packaging through your door, we've been struggling with that thing for a long time. 
Uh, we're back and we've been testing lots of things. The problem is there's a couple of packages out there that are pretty good from the standpoint of keeping things cold and structurally integrity. But the, the problem has been is that um, they just cost an arm and a leg. And um, we've actually kind of created a couple of our own attempts just using cardboard in several layers. And uh, we've got a couple of things that we've been playing around with internally trying to do this. And so uh, I have an idea. Can I throw an idea? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm and, uh, wide open. Uh, this just came up during like, uh, I don't know, deep thought. Um, but um, um, and maybe there's an engineer that, you know, sees an opportunity to make millions on this idea. But what I was thinking of, because you have to deal with the, that's, that vacuum issue. You got to be able to maintain the benefits of having a vacuum pack. What if there were like silicon bags that you could, that, and you, know, you could buy them right from your butcher or whatever, or any, anywhere um, that you know, fit maybe somewhere in the 10 to 20 pounds of meat. It could fit on the average shelf in the average freezer. And it had a built-in little pump. It was, so it was reusable, it sat in your freezer and you could re-vacuum it quickly after opening it. And then using that butcher paper or some kind of you know, parchment paper, or whatever, to wrap the, because you guys all sell it. I know you sell like big primals too, but most stuff we buy is essentially individually wrapped vacuum sealed in plastic, which is really convenient in many ways um, for either, you know, one or two servings in a, in a package, unless it's like a roast, you know, maybe three or four servings. But what I was thinking is if each serving was wrapped in the paper and then they were stacked together with, you know, maybe a toothpick or something between them so they didn't like freeze together completely so that when you open the freezer and you open like the silicon bag, you could pry one off very easily because they weren't like glued together. But then quickly when you seal it, like pump the, the vacuum pump on the outside bag a couple of times and recreate that vacuum environment. So you're only pulling out what you need for that meal and maintaining everything else in good shape. And maybe you don't get the same three or four years because you are periodically letting the air change, but you know, maybe maybe you get a year or something, something better where, you know, when somebody got a delivery, yeah, you had the one big cooler. And I understand the packaging around that because, you know, you guys are overnighting um, a cooler full of frozen food. But like if everything inside the cooler could have little to no plastic and because of what we have in our freezer, like waiting for it, because we've already kind of committed and invested in this process, um, I wonder if there's a solution. I, I mean, I would, I would think that eventually we will see some kind of solution over the next five or 10 years. But um, you know, this is just what comes up into my mind. Like, I wonder if that's possible. I think if it is, there's probably some money to make. Because like, as a consumer, being able to vote with my dollars to like, support the people I value and the companies that share my values, I would be glad to pay the one time, you know, $40 for the fancy bag that I just keep there that lasts, you know, a very, very long time that I reuse and just refill with individually frozen servings. Am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. That's how new ideas come about. Hopefully there's an engineer that's listening to this podcast at some point and he can uh, contact uh, one or both of us and say, I've got this thing figured out. So that's, that's how change, that's how change occurs. You got to have crazy ideas. Yeah. And, and you got to have a need. Like I, I know my son did uh, one of his uh, school, I think homeschool projects was on um, 
like the giant pile of plastic in one of the oceans. I don't know. I forget the name of it. Oh my gosh. It's just terrifying to look at. And it's like, we think of, you know, when you have kids and you're thinking about what are we leaving behind and like, where is this all going? Cause we're just consuming at a higher, higher rate and using it's like, it's not slowing down. So uh, we need, you know, bold moves. And that's just one thing that every time I'm opening the pack, I'm like so grave. I love getting the deliveries. And then when I'm going through it, I'm, I can't help but think like, man, I hate all this single use plastic. Like I hate that I have to do this. It kind of tears at me, but I don't know a better way right, right now. But I do look forward to the industry uh, evolving. Are there any other things that you see being kind of deeply embedded in the food industry that um, are like in, in the works or things that your pet peeves that you feel like are due for solutions or you have ideas for? Well, first of all, I would say the food industry is doing is, you know, is doing a really good job compared to 40 years ago. You talk to people in the meat industry and so we've come a long ways in the last 40 years from the standpoint of food safety. And, you know, the only, the thing I chafe at a little bit is just the, the bureaucracy you know, involved in, in, in having a USDA facility and all the stuff that goes with it. And it just seems like there's um, there's some redundant things you could remove. But I, uh, and then the other trend that's occurring, which nobody really saw coming was the, uh, of course the COVID mess excalibrated that thing, but the amount of food being moved through online methods and, and i don't think anybody okay, saw so that coming you talk to people in fedex have been around a long time but they didn't see that this explosion coming so the consumer is um, not going to the grocery store near as often as they used to um, which is kind of interesting and the young people today you know uh, we are in the process of putting together a new web platform, which we hope we'll have out here in September. We've been working on it all year. Shopify is kind of a Cadillac program now. And one we have is not keeping up with the time. So, but it's, um, you know, the subscription model is also interesting. I find it amazing that young people put an order in and they don't really care what shows up as long as something shows up every two weeks at their doorstep. It's kind of a interesting kind of a party when the box shows up. You know, I wonder what's going to be at this time. You know, it's just kind of I haven't quite swallowed that concept, but I'll give Butcher Box credit. They saw that quicker than I did. But um, anyway, that's uh, uh, you know, I think the way we buy food is changing. I think. Uh, uh, but I think the consumer is getting a lot more astute as to what they buy and put in their bodies. I think there's a, I think the younger generation realizes how critical it is. I always said, you know, I think eventually at some point, 50% of the population would have some inkling that this grass-fed product is a better form health-wise. But I only thought, you know, half of those people would go the trouble to make the, to make the lifestyle change. But I think as this gener okay. the millennials grow up and the generation wise come along, I think there's a, a lot more interest in eating healthy. I think that's the case. However, you know, we have high school students come through our facility for tours and you ask them what omega threes are and there's a blank look on their faces, you know, there's uh, in general population. But you get around the athletic community and the people that are really, and you get around the people that are actually have some sort of an autoimmune disease, and all of a sudden they're really interested in trying to eat better and trying to stay healthy. So then you, yeah, when you the, lose your health, you get very, you, you get very focused on it, you know, when you know what it's like to have it taken from you. So 
I know I could speak to that after going through some illness for years and, and really using food as a big, big tool to get myself back. It's kind of interesting. My father never really bought into the, you know, into the fat is bad for you back in the 70s. He's still 80s bacon and 80s butter and liked a lot of fat. And my mother, unfortunately, drank some of that Kool-Aid and changed her diet dramatically and not for the better. And I kind of went to set my own family. She developed dementia you know, uh, later in life. And, and I think that was just because she wouldn't get enough good, good, good fats. And, and uh, even a tablespoon of, uh, of uh, coconut oil a day is really, really good for people, you know, that are starting to get in age. Something as simple as that, and it just cost pennies. You know, you can actually make a difference by increasing that, that fat content as, as Americans age, I think fats. And that's why I eat so much pemmican. I'm, a, I'm kind of a junkie on that. And, uh, I'll, uh, and what's the fat? fat? Is there a certain part of the animal that's that's in pemmican? Well, we're just taking, you know, we're taking the fat trimmings. You know, it's uh, what you're doing. You're taking uh, beef soot, for example, and you're rendering that down. Of course, there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of organ, like the kidney fat is a little much denser fat than you. If you're carving fat off of the off of the outer rind of the animal, that's a different kind of a fat, but we blend those two together for the most for the most part. But uh, but it's just sky high and uh, and omega uh, threes and sky high and, and CLA is a magic stuff that actually you know fights diabetes and fights cancer. And that's for the for stuff. listeners CLA that's conjugated linoleic acid. Acid that's correct. That's and that was really kind of what got me into this thing because I stumbled across Dr. Mike Parisa was a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin back in the 80s and they one of his projects was to look at uh, charcoal we, we were we were charcoal broiling lots of steaks in that era and people thought that charcoal was causing cancer when you cook meat over charcoal and that really didn't turn out to be the case but they discovered something in red meat was killing cancer uh, cells and they were puzzled by it and um, and what Dr. Mike Parisa figured out was that conjugated linoleic acid is really produced from green plants being consumed by by either lamb or dairy animals or beef animals, and it's um, it's a unique fat. The, the industry tried to make some synthetic copies. Uh, you can go into the health food store and buy some CLA capsules, and we did that research in 2000. We had the University of Illinois sampled our first grass steaks, uh, meats, and uh, they went into the local health food store and bought some CLA capsules, six different brands. And I remember that that, that lab person says none of those were really CLA. They'd oh, actually wow. oxidize. Two or three of them were, were harmless and two or three had turned into something you didn't really want. And I think Tonlin was the one that probably of all of them was the best. Um, I remember that Tonlin was still sold, I think now, but it, but it's very difficult and, and rest assured some of the, the food industry tried to do that, but, but mother nature makes it really in a unique manner. And, and uh, there was a breast cancer trial in France in the early 2000s and they stopped it after about eight or nine months because they were people on the CLA diet, uh, you know, obviously were in much better shape. So that's fascinating. You. So if somebody wanted to increase and support whatever action CLAs are involved in. Is Pemmican is an easy way to get a high dose? And Pemmican and also just 75% lean ground beef. I always eat the 75% and I'll also eat the 55% lean. Ooh. And you got to cook it 
carefully so you don't take, cook all the fat out of it. How does it stay to get? Boy, I would think that would just kind of turn into a big puddle of liquid. Well, it's actually, um, we actually- What, what cut more. is 55% that you make that? Or are you just well, taking fat from elsewhere and adding yeah, it? Exactly, you just okay. add fat trim to the ground beef. But uh, okay. um, but anyway, that's the, but the CLA is neat stuff. And there was a study done at Iowa State in the winter of 99. I went to Iowa State years ago. That's why I got a connection there. But in the winter of 99, 2000, they took, they took uh, pigs and fed them hydro hydrogenated safflower oil, which is also another form of CLA. It's too expensive to feed commercially. But those pigs had 25% less back fat and a 10% larger loin eye. They were putting on lean muscle, taking on fat. We've actually had some bodybuilders, uh, a couple of women back in the early 2000s, they were buying 75% lean ground beef. They were eating, that, eating high fat ground beef for breakfast. And then end of the day, they would eat like a flank steak, really lean, you know, full of protein. But we had several people and then and these strong men the same way. They were consuming a stupid amount of CLA, they were eating three or four pounds of ground beef a day, but they were putting on lean muscle and taking off fat. They, they got really lean and really strong after about a year. So, but, uh, but if you've got any history of diabetes in the family, you've got a cancer history, um, you know, eating grass-fed beef is a big difference. And there's a book called The 100 Year Live, which was written by John Fitzgerald. And I've given that thing away too many times, but it's, uh, he, he was a Californian. He, he lost his parents. He, he had a large family, lost him for siblings. And he's a writer and an investigative journalist. And he couldn't figure out what was going on. And he actually, it's a fascinating book. And he talked about, you know, when we added fluorine to the drinking water and MSG in 1908 and Cargill back in their early 1900s went to the University of Minnesota. So we want to change, you know, agronomically how the grain of wheat is produced. And so the wheat produced prior to 1910 was much healthier in the bread that we ate as Americans. And after say 1920, when they increased the starch content of the grain of wheat to get, to get more flour out of it so they could make more money. Uh, 1923 in this, uh, in this book, if I quote it right, that was the first time heart disease was really discussed at Mayo Clinic, I think 1923. And that was 10 years after they made these changes and how the winter wheat was produced for spring wheat up in the upper Midwest. Hmm. But we changed, you know, we, we changed the physical properties of wheat um, and, and made it harmful, uh, made it more harmful to bread that we ate. So uh, that's, it gets back to the gluten issue again. So, but it's, um, but you know, the. MSG has been around since 1908 and, and fluoride, but it's a fascinating read. I used to take that to trade shows and point out to people there's little things you can do to you know, improve your odds of trying to stay alive. And, and that's I called The 100 Year Lie. Who was the author of that? John Fitzgerald. It's like John Fitzgerald Kennedy, but Fitzgerald, F-I-T-Z-G-E-R-A-L-D. But it's a it's a great read. It's uh, quick to read, but he just talks about all the things in the last hundred and some years that have happened to us as Americans um, from the standpoint of what we eat on a daily basis. And then he, I think he talked about the food pyramid being flipped over in the late sixties, early seventies. Um, so I'm just lucky I stumbled into this thing when I did, I probably wouldn't be around today. I mean, I was involved in lots of farm pesticides and chemicals and for 1975 to 2000. I ran into an holistic doctor who 
kind of diagnosed me as pre-bone cancer, you know, 10 to 12 years ago, and told me what to do to get rid of the toxins I had. And I'm really, I'm in really good shape right now. I just feel lucky that I've, I took this path and the one least traveled. And um, and I recognized in 1993 or four, the idea kind of hit me, you know, if we could go direct to the consumer, this is better for everybody. And in 1995, the internet came along. That was the first internet. Yeah, internet hadn't been around that long. You think about that. I mean, this is, I think 1995 was the first internet transactions and we started in 2000. That was kind of the wild, wild west. But, uh, you know, historically, this little sliver of history from 1995 to 2022 is a pretty little short glimpse of time. It's amazing how disruptive that thing was and the changes that have occurred. Is it, can I ask you um, maybe one last question here? So you, you had your own health situation. You had doctors telling you that you're on the way to lung cancer, probably because of the exposure to all the chemicals in, in the commercial farming you said you did for 25 years. Um, what other than like changing your diet, were there other like lifestyle strategies that you felt really were, um, were important during that healing process? Well, first of all, there was, there was a bone cancer issue, you know, it was in my right oh, femur. bone, I thought you said it, lung, no, okay. It, it bone, it was, it was actually right femur was full of uh, lots of bad things. Um, but we sell a product now called Humic Detox, which is humic and folic acid. There are several varieties of that around the country. But right. within six months, it was completely cleaned up. I was, oh, wow. I was lucky. But um, And you think but, the humic and fulvic acid yeah, were, were important? Yeah, yeah, wow. very, very important. I took it twice a day. And I ran into the same guy at another trade show six months later with the same equipment. It's a biotracker device, which is is uh, maybe 10,000 of those in the world. And he said, yeah, you're, all, you're good to go. And I haven't had a pain in that hip for, you know, ever since. I used to have a really sore hip. But, uh, wow, that's amazing. Fascinating story. And, and you said means, you sell a product for that? Because I didn't know yeah. that you guys... Um, had we, your own is it your product or do you just sell no, it, on the website it, it's selling it on the website we it, used to have our own label on it and, and i've kind of gotten lazy you know we <laughs> okay. don't sell we don't sell that much of it but we have a handful of people what is it called again humic detox humic h-u-m-i-c-d-e-t-i -D -D right. i've definitely I, seen on some of the supplements i've seen those words humic and fulvic acids and i've never really been clear on uh what they are but um I that would, would really, like that would really works. If you take out of it, I take it before bedtime and drink six or eight ounces of non-chlorinated water. And I drink water every night, ever, you know, but the night you take that the next morning, your, your bladder flow is considerably more voluminous than it was you know, the day before. If you don't, it, it's just because you're, you're actively detoxing your cells or letting the water in, hydration's going in and, and we have over a billion cells and, and they don't all get cleaned out on a daily basis. So those, those materials allow for the cell itself to become more hydrated. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. There's, and there's a trace mineral we sell in the same section of the website, and that actually will encourage that process too. So I, I, I take both of them together. Gotcha. Um, and for the listeners, but, I'm going to link to uh, the site in the show notes. And full disclosure, I have recently signed up uh, an affiliate with US Wellness. So really grateful for you guys to offer me that opportunity. And um, so, you know, if you are looking for a way to you know, explore what we're talking about and support our channel. That's a great way. You know, we don't just pair up with, um, with any company. We don't, uh, recommend anybody using something that we don't use ourselves. And your company is definitely something that's been a, a staple of our kitchen really for uh, probably around five or six years ish now. 
So feel really confident in spreading the word. I, I'm a little, um, I'm always a little worried about doing this. Like I'm afraid to, to share. Cause I, I want to make sure when I go online, I still got options. <laughs> I'm always afraid to like give the secrets away. Um, but uh, I, I think what you're doing is, is really awesome. And you know, I'm honored to, to support it. And I also really enjoy being a conduit for your message. I think this is a really important message, especially around the soil. And I think more and more people are waking up to it. And I look forward to seeing kind of where, how that shapes maybe um, behaviors and even policy over the, um, I try to be optimistic. It's hard to be optimistic about it when you're referring to policy, um, but you know, at least start with behaviors and wait, people waking up, learning more, educate themselves, empowering themselves to play a bigger role in their wellness. And in hopes, um, as those people, you know, become policymakers in time that hopefully we shape policy as a society that helps support these, these systems. And I really look at it as learning how to harmonize with the planet and not control it, but, you know, but, you know, get, get that harmony, you know, vibrate along with it, um, as opposed to try to control, try to manipulate. Uh, I think there's an unintended consequence to, to that framework it, every time, you know, uh, whether we realize it or not. Um, John, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing some of your insights with us. Is there anything else you would like to, to add before we wrap this up? Oh, two, two little tidbits. The other thing you asked what I've done, and I've actually taken sugar out of my diet the best I can. I've eliminated 99% of the sugar intake. I, I, do have a, I, I do have a feeling when I see wild blackberries on the fence row, I've got to go sample those. But I mean, but it's, uh, I've, I've, unfortunately, I've, I haven't had any alcohol for over three years, never had much of an issue, but I've eliminated that completely. And I've eliminated Good for you. Uh, gluten, some breads. And so I try to, I'm a really high fat the moderate protein consumer. So that's one of the, one of the other tricks. And I did like your closing comment about harmony and frequencies. Um, you know, the, the word frequency kind of rings a bell. We've actually got a device in our facility now that's actually harmonizes all the inbound EMF frequencies coming into our environment. And I've got one on my farm. I've got one of 10 farms in the United States where you actually, uh, it's another long, it's, an, it's another conversation, but we are trying to harmonize uh, even plants don't like emf radiation uh, livestock doesn't care for it and it's harmful to humans in our little rural community here we've got we didn't ever used to have cancer in kids now we have cancer there's always a family or two that's got a really tough story and i'm fully convinced that we are bombarding ourselves with frequencies and bad frequencies and i think it's up to us and people like yourself to figure out a solution for this thing and i've got an experiment going on here for the last couple of years but i feel like that's one of the reasons why the health in this building has been really good as we've actually harmonized frequencies from cell phone towers our electrical connections within the building we have a large amount of electrical use going through here i feel like we've, we've, we've actually helped the, the health of the workforce i've got a device in my own home for i think i've neutralized everything that's going on there i've got it on the farm and uh, like i said there's about 25 farms around the united states this all this all came out of australia new zealand it's a Nikol, it's nikolai tesla type stuff that's, right. that's yeah that's that's done. fascinating i'm also fascinated with that and i i would like to hear more about that relationship with the animals I think we may need to save that for part two. Maybe next year we'll have you on and you could uh, 
give us kind of the before and after of that experiment that would be that would be interesting we have had a emf expert on the podcast about a year or two ago and um, i used some products to try to um you know intervene with the negative effects with some of those non-native emfs but um it's a, it's a fascinating topic it definitely deserves its own show for sure um john thank you again and for the listeners if you want to check it out um i will link in the description of the video all the um all the links to try out the products and if you uh feel inclined please share with the community uh your thoughts about them after you test them out and um and maybe help someone else by spreading the word john thanks again and for the listeners out there appreciate your listening and i hope everyone out there has a great day Thank you, Les. I thoroughly enjoyed my time here today. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Uh, I had a great conversation with John Wood. Um, if you endured, I know there was a little background noise on that, so I appreciate your patience and understanding while we uh, deal with the technology that we have. But I hope you found some value out of it. And I do encourage you, if you're looking to support a company, that you could feel proud of while finding a way to nourish you and your family. I do encourage you to go over to the website, explore around. The website alone is a quite uh, impressive resource and, you know, give it a try. And if you do and you want to share some feedback, then feel, then please share it with the community here. Thanks again for your listening. I hope you have a great day.